Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Streaming Science Podcast. Streaming Science is a student-driven program that works to connect you with scientists to learn how science impacts all of us in our everyday lives. I'm Whitney Stone, a second-year doctoral student in the Agricultural Education and Communication Department at the University of Florida, and your host for this episode. You're currently listening to an episode from our most recent series titled The State of the Scientific Enterprise During COVID-19, made in partnership with the UF-IFAS Research Dean's Office and the College of Agricultural and Life Sciences. In this series, we explore the stories of scientists and their students about how COVID-19 has impacted their professional and personal lives. In the following interview, I spoke with Dr. John Lai and Dr. Bashir Cassis. I wanted to know more about Dr. Cassis and Dr. Lai's study, where they surveyed how people spent their stimulus money or their economic impact payments. Throughout the interview, you'll hear them refer to the stimulus funds as the acronym EIPs, and people receive these funds from the CARES Act. We also discussed changes Cassis and Lai made to their teaching and what they learned during the COVID-19 pandemic. Through this podcast, I hope you gain insight into Dr. Lai and Dr. Cassis's research, learn about the economic impacts of COVID-19, and an overall sense of how scientists are moving forward to keep the scientific enterprise up and running during a global pandemic. Let's jump right in. Well, thank you all for taking time out of your day and sitting down and talking and and having a conversation about your research and what's been going on uh, during the pandemic. And so I would just like for you all to introduce yourselves, tell us your name and your position at the University of Florida. My name is John Lai. I am an assistant professor of agribusiness in the Food and Resource Economics Department at the University of Florida. And my name is Bashir Cassis. I'm also an assistant professor in agribusiness at the Food and Resource Economics Department at the University of Florida. I want to talk a little bit about the study that y'all worked on together and a little bit of why we're here today. First of all, can one of you all tell me about the CARES Act in general, just for our listeners who aren't familiar maybe, or maybe in the future if they listen to this podcast, to kind of give a little context about the CARES Act, it's specifically what you were all were interested with the economic part or how that fed into your research. Sure. So the CARES Act is a bill that got passed in 2020 and, uh, its purpose was to provide emergency assistance and a healthcare response for individuals, families, and businesses that were being affected by the coronavirus pandemic that was causing impacts across the, the country. And so in that bill, the CARES Act authorized stimulus payments of up to $1,200 per individual or $2,400 for married couples and up to $500 for qualified dependents. Eligibility was based on household income. And what we really were very interested in was how people were spending this sudden injection of cash into the household unit. These kinds of payments from the government are rare. Over the decade, only a handful of these kinds of payments get doled out. And so we were really curious with the pandemic impacting families and businesses, we were wondering what are people spending this money on? Where where are they prioritizing 
the spending and what were their needs. So let's talk a little bit about the the study you did. So you did a survey and you distributed it. Can you tell us a little bit about the survey and, and what were your findings? So the, the survey was actually distributed in May 2020. And during that time, uh, some families or some households in the U.S. had already received their uh, economic impact payments. And some did not receive but were either anticipating or did not even anticipate receive uh, based on their income and other restrictions that were uh, involved with the payments. So yeah, this was a survey, nationwide survey in the U.S. We collected uh, data from a representative sample of around 1,000 respondents. And uh, as John was, was saying, we were mainly interested in uh, investigating the ways that the U.S. households spend their economic impact payments. So among, I think we've included probably 10 different categories of, of things that people can spend money on. Uh, we wanted to see like the, the fraction or the proportion of the sample that spent money on each category, as well as uh, how much of their economic impact payments they, they spent you know, on these categories. And we also looked at changes in food purchasing behavior due to COVID-19. Uh, the main results, I think, so for, for the most part, uh, households spend their money on basic needs like food and shelter, and they also put some money in savings. So in terms of, you know, the CARES Act fulfilling its goal, which is to provide immediate relief to U.S. families, I think it, it did a good job because, you know, families were actually spending it on things that they immediately needed during COVID-19. And uh, so, and also we found that people or households in general were buying or spending their EIP or economic impact payments on traditional uh, uh, retailers. So uh, for example, grocery stores and delivery services, they benefited the most from the spending of, of these payments. And in terms of uh, food, like spending on food specifically, uh, we found that U.S. households uh, gravitated a little bit more towards uh, non-perishable food items like canned food or dry food, uh, for example. And yeah, so we, these were the main uh, findings that we had Why is this study important and what does it tell us or, you know, for, for you all studying consumer preferences, what can you take from the findings from this and for future studies or recommendations? So I think one important element of this study is it provides insights on the degree to which the CARES Act stimulated different sectors in the uh, U.S. economy. And I think this is very important for policymaking. And also it, it gave us insights on how the CARES Act affected different players specifically in the agricultural and food industry. To add to that, if policymakers are wondering is this money being spent on emergency sheltering needs or food needs? This survey gives them some insight into the amount of spending into each of these 10 different categories and drilling down further on the food side, what foods specifically families spending money on. Uh, and so that kind of gives some information about how the economic impact payments were helping families across the nation. Do you all have plans to continue the survey as the government uh, continues with different parts of relief to the American uh, public? Yeah, so our team which involves Bashir and Jacqueline Krop, Jifeng Gao, and Stephen Morgan and myself. We're getting ready to roll out another survey as the next bill is being considered in the House and being voted on. 
And we're going to be interested in looking at what that spending of the $1,400, which is much anticipated here, how families are going to be spending that money. One of the interesting things from the, the $1,200 payments was that there were some households that ended up saving some of that money and putting money aside for future emergencies. Because with how unpredictable the pandemic is, and you know this is a you know, kind of a first-time experience for many people, a lot of people didn't know how to prepare. And putting some money aside to pay for you know unexpected job loss and continue paying for housing and rent, you know, we'll be interested in looking at that and seeing how people allocate the next stimulus check they might be eligible for to receive in the future. And at the same time, there are new questions, I think. Uh, we'll be interested in how willing people are to get vaccinated and uh, the new norm might be for them and what they uh, what their outlook is as the nation begins to recover. Bashir? So we, we do have plans for uh, a second wave, let's say, of the survey, and it would be very interesting to look at the comparison between our previous results and the new results that we come up with. Yeah, we're now sitting at a time when there's a little more light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine. And so uh, definitely would be curious to see how that is allocated differently in people's households and, and what they do, maybe a little bit more certainty than it was a couple months ago with COVID-19. What are the biggest takeaways from the CARES Act survey you would like people to know? Well, I think like two main things, I'll say that the CARES Act, it fulfilled its goals pretty much, at least that's what we, uh, that the, that's what the, the evidence uh, points to in our survey. So people are spending it on uh, basic needs and they're actually also, as John was saying, they're putting money in savings to hedge uh, uncertainties that were related to COVID. And I think it also tells us the biggest uh, uh, benefiters from the food sector, uh, from basically the EIP uh, spending. So uh, which players in the food sector were benefiting the most from these spendings? Of course, I think we, we alluded to that. Uh, it's basically the traditional uh, grocery retailers. So we know COVID-19 has brought many challenges to research and to researchers like yourselves. Can you tell us some positive impacts you've experienced with conducting research during this time? And frankly, I, I have to say new projects that uh, became available that are directly related to COVID. So we did get involved in, in several projects that were, I think, productive and fruitful, and they opened up the uh, opportunity for new collaborations with new members. And yeah, I mean, I, I see that as a positive uh, impact on research. It's also you know, forced a lot of people to meet over virtual platforms. And so making those connections, albeit virtually, it's really opened the door for us to kind of uh, meet researchers far away where typically uh, long distance travel would be involved and being able to meet people over the internet and kind of discuss timely research that's going on it's made it a lot easier. You know, these kinds of black swan events are very unpredictable. And so that's really opened the door for the opportunity to research something that is very new and very little is understood about these types of events. Uh, and so getting a chance to dig into the details of how these, uh, the nuances of the impacts that, you know, individuals are facing, 
businesses are facing and all throughout the supply chain. Those challenges are things that we want to try to kind of shed more light on and understand better so that if this were to ever occur again, we could be better prepared and mitigate some of these challenges and reduce the impact in a way. Yeah, it's so interesting. And things have just been so dynamic throughout this whole pandemic, just with constant change. I want to talk a little bit about, since you all are educators and in the classroom and teaching and working with students, how has the pandemic uh, impacted the students or have you been able to see a difference with your students or how you deal with students or what has possibly changed in the past year with teaching? Uh, I do notice that some students are facing more challenges related to COVID-19, like logistics and mobility, you know, studying from home, for example, could be challenging. And so we are a bit more accommodating of uh, these uh, situations. Uh, with my other two classes, uh, so in the fall semester, I was teaching the advanced agriculture and microeconomics. We had to move that class from in-person as it was before the pandemic to completely online. And it was a bit challenging because the class is very heavily math-based. And so being able to relate to students, you know, through a computer screen was a bit uh, different than having that face-to-face interaction with them in the classroom. Uh, This semester, I'm teaching the uh, survey class for the uh, master students. And it's, uh, so the course is high flex, which means that part of the students are attending in person and the other part are attending online. And so you have to cater to both uh, modes of uh, of learning, basically, both online and in person. And so uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a little different because I used to have a lot of interactions and discussions with students and in the classroom. And so now I'm uh, sort of like having to probably like do the, like the students in person, they do uh, certain activities. So they form into groups, I think naturally, and then the students online form into their own groups as well. And so we're able to maintain, you know, like a similar pace, but the, I think the dynamic is a little bit different. For online courses, students have a lot of demands on their time. They may be taking care of a sibling at home, or they may be having to find a job so that they can support their families. And so, you know, with so much on their plate, I've had to, you know, be a little bit more lenient and work, be more flexible with students, uh, give them you know, some extra time to complete assignments and, you know, provide them that opportunity to complete their coursework while meanwhile still, you know, supporting their families at the same time. Another challenge that was un- unexpected was that, you know, with some students traveling back home to be with their families, they may not have internet at home. And so in some more, more rural parts of, uh, of Florida or other parts of the country, internet access continues to be a bit of a problem and a reliable internet access, I should say. And so this presented a, a different challenge for students connecting to an online course. As instructors, we continue to be flexible with students and, and try to help uh, make sure that they continue to meet their educational goals as well. And I know we talked about it in our last conversation, but it it was kind of the idea, too, of what was happening not only with your students, but what was happening generally with the population about these family dynamics and like household structures were like changing because people were moving home, you know, maybe loved ones who were in nursing homes were coming home. And so I'm sorry to jump back to our conversation about economics, since, but can you talk a little bit about how 
households changed or from an economy point of view, how that impacted the CARES Act? So one of the the questions in our survey that we conducted looked at the impacts uh, as a result of the coronavirus on household structure. So we asked the respondents about the age groups that were living within the household before the pandemic and as the pandemic continued on. And so we noticed that a large portion of families saw a condensing of the household unit where uh, there were senior citizens that were coming back and living with um, their younger, their children or young adults that may be a way to attend school, uh, college, uh, university, were coming back to live with their parents. In some ways, households' sizes changed during the pandemic. And so that was another kind of un- unexpected consequence of the, of the pandemic. Absolutely. And especially being at the University of Florida, a lot of students yeah, had to move back home when the campus shut down. So even just with in our own situation, how that changed with students. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, some students moved several states away to be with their families. Uh, And so, you know, there was while, you know, a lot of the economic activity was shutting down uh, across the country, you know, there was still a lot of students, you know, traveling back home, not just within Florida, but beyond Florida as well. So I want to know some final thoughts you'd like to share about the life for scientists and students after COVID-19. So where do you see the future going with what we've learned during the pandemic and maybe with your own research and your teaching? So there's going to be a lot of opportunities for students to get involved and you know re- and conduct some research. There's, of course, the backlog of research that got put on hold because of the pandemic. Bashir and I, we had multiple projects to roll out. Uh, And then as soon as the uh, pandemic hit, uh, those projects were put on hold and we had to kind of figure out ways to uh, operationalize them over a virtual format. But then there's still new questions that are coming out as a result of the pandemic, right? Uh, We wanted to find out more about how families were being impacted, you know, what kinds of uh, consumer behaviors uh, changed, you know, uh, hand washing and wearing a mask and social distancing, distancing how that impacts uh, shoppers in retail environments, or maybe how that impacts what kind of agricultural products get bought during, around holidays still. So lots of uh, economic activities that still needs to be studied. And so lots of opportunities for students to get involved. Yeah, I, I echo that. Uh, definitely. Uh, lots of 3D interesting opportunities. I think there's also some sort of a normalization of the virtual platform, both in, in research and in teaching. And so I think maybe we see probably like a, an increase in the number of online courses or hybrid courses that offer an online component for students that want to, to, to enroll in that. And I think also like uh, uh, research work and meetings between uh, different faculty members or researchers, I think it's it's easier to meet online these days. And I think that probably would continue after the pandemic. Um, Zoom is, is sort of like a new normal. Now everybody is meeting through Zoom. And I think we've gone to a level where we're pretty comfortable meeting virtually. Yeah, it definitely provides a lot of opportunities 
uh, challenges, obviously connectivity, but a lot of opportunities. Yeah, definitely challenges. But I think it, the nice aspect is it breaks the distance barrier, especially with you know universities across the country, for example, or even internationally. It's, uh, I think it's easier to meet with them now because uh, you know how convenient uh, virtual meetings have become. I want to ask you all if there were some things you've learned just in general from the pandemic during this past year that our lives have changed. So much has changed over the past year. And one thing that continues to surprise me is how resilient the the American population is and their ability to rise up to a challenge. And this, this is definitely a challenge, right? Uh, the pandemic. Everybody needs to kind of, kind of, you know, step back, you know, and continue to help each other and uh, support each other because, you know, all we're, we're all in this together, right? And everybody, it's a struggle for everybody. And so, you know, continuing to, you know, wear your mask, keep social distancing and washing your hands, that's going to help us as a country get through this pandemic faster and get through, uh, get to the finish line sooner, right? Because the, uh, the vaccines are on the way. Once we can get herd immunity, it'll be a lot safer and we'll be able to get to some sort of uh, new normal, I suppose. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think we would not look at hygiene the same way ever again after COVID-19. But I think one of the biggest takeaways here is the importance of coming together as a community and cooperating with one another to get through a crisis. And I think we've seen that on multiple different uh, settings uh, during COVID-19. Uh, so, for example, with panic buying, when everybody was, you know, like hoarding different products and basic supplies and how that created an issue. And I think also working together to prevent, you know, contracting and transmitting the virus and, and all of these uh, uh, cases, basically, they emphasize the importance of of thinking pro-socially pretty much and working with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the panic buying, it seems like a long time ago. This year has been sort of long, but yeah, the panic buying, the toilet paper, the hand sanitizer and, and things like that seem yes, very recent, but yet very distant at the same time. Thank you, Dr. Lai and Dr. Cassis, for sharing your research with us today. As a result of their research, we know that most Americans surveyed spent their economic impact payments on basic needs like food and shelter. Their research showed us where the EIP stimulated different food and agricultural sectors as well. And as a result, what this means is that policymakers now have insight into how the money was spent. Thank you for listening to the State of the Scientific Enterprise during COVID-19 series on the Streaming Science Podcast. Make sure to follow and reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Buzzsprout. For more information about research at UF-IFAS, visit the link in the show notes. We would love to conduct more of these interviews and grow this series to include a variety of scientists' voices and perspectives. If you're interested in participating, please email us at streamingscience1 at gmail.com. That's streamingscience, the number one, at gmail.com. I'm your host, Whitney Stone, and thank you for listening.